0: This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be an Afro-Latina U.S. American woman and a journalist? In this episode... Veronica shares her stories of growing up in Brooklyn, New York, and her reflections on the importance of informing oneself. She also talks about her newly published book, Call and Response, The Story of Black Lives Matter, the Valley of Black Lives Matter movement beyond the U.S. and beyond issues pertaining to racism. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Veronica.
1: My name is Veronica Chambers. My family is from Panama, actually. And my identity and my heritage is Afro-Latina. I was born in Panama. And then when I was a baby, when I was like 18 months, our family actually moved to England. And we lived here until I was five. And we lived in Northern England, which is why whenever someone says your Spanish accent doesn't sound like anyone I've ever heard before, it's because... um, it's Panama via Northern England and then to Brooklyn. And then I moved to Brooklyn when I was five and I grew up there. And, you know, I think, I think of Brooklyn as a big part of my identity, partly because I think it's always been a really culturally rich borough. And even though it's very popular now, I think it's just always been a place of great culture mixing. I think it's been a place of great creativity. You know, I was always inspired by the writers and artists that came out of Brooklyn. And even though I grew up like super poor, I I felt like I was growing up in a really rich city where ideas and creativity and journalism and art and all of those things mattered a lot. So I think that definitely um, shaped me.
0: Veronica says that growing up in Brooklyn, New York, she was exposed to issues around race and racism from a very early age onward.
1: I don't think that there was a moment that I honestly didn't know it. I mean, I'm a dark-skinned woman and uh growing up in a culture that subjugates and undervalues my race and gender. And so it was everything. It was, you know, when you think about the doll experiments of the 1950s, it was going to the store and not having dolls that look like me. It was not seeing people who look like me on TV. It was in school, not having teachers think that, you know, you were smart or assuming things about you. And and so I, I think it was constant. And I grew up in New York in a time that, you know, in a very impoverished neighborhood and, and family. So I think the economic crisis of race was also part of it because that sense of limited opportunities, that sense of invisibility, the sense of lack, I think that all connected to race in powerful ways. You know what I mean? Because I I will say this, I was in elementary school when Reagan was elected. And I remember the demonizing of Black people that that campaign had in terms of you know, the welfare queen who lives on Cadillacs and all the things that the Reagan era brought to the fore. And so I think I felt it on both a micro level, but I was very aware it was happening in the government as well.
0: Veronica shares a couple of incidents she experienced in college, which she still remembers to this day. She also highlights how writers helped her to make sense of the world around her.
1: I went to a really small college in New England. I went to Bard College at Simons Rock. I felt a lot of isolation there. I felt like there was a lot of racist language in the name of free speech. You know, people were like, I can say the N-word because it's free speech. And, you know, things like that. Um, I found it incredibly difficult. I think that one of the things that I've learned about myself is that I'm both a warrior and a really delicate being. And I I like, I just, I hurt all the time, you know? And so when people say things offhandedly and they, you know, they're like in a classroom and saying to me, I think that when this rapper uses the N-word and, you know, this, or I think that an N-word is this, or, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, my skin is coming off, you know? And so... I think that that was really tough. I think that I felt like I had a lifetime of being educated on the mainstream American culture. I remember when James Baldwin died and a classmate of mine said to me, I was 16 and I was crying because I had always wanted to meet James Baldwin. He meant everything to me. I mean, I can't even say. And um, I was 16 and I was crying and she said to me, I got 1600 on the SATs, which is like an entrance exam that you have to take to get into college. And I'm valedictorian in my class and I've never heard of James Baldwin. So he can't be that important. He can't be all the things that you say he is. And I just, I, I was so devastated because I just thought, I've read Jane Austen. I've read Thoreau. I've read all the things. And I would never walk into a room and say, I'm not going to read X, Y, and Z because I've never heard of them. Or if I've never heard of them, they're not important. And that's where that's where I'm talking about like the richness of our culture and the loss that I think people don't know that they have. Because if you read James Baldwin, you understand so much about not just our country, but our world. And, you know, he he's had a renaissance recently, you know, movies and all these things. But partly because I, I think that one of the things I feel about writers of color, I feel this about many women, too, writers of other centuries, is James Baldwin was a futurist. He saw not only the moment we were in, but the moment we were headed to. And what awaited us if we could not address the question of difference in power? And we are still in that moment now. And so I felt incredibly hurt that someone could see someone crying and just say, that person who died is unimportant because I and all my six her and all her 16-year-old. Glory. I mean, the, you know, the hubris to say she had certain test scores and she was valedictorian of her class or, you know, number one in her class or whatever it was. And that, therefore, this person that I knew to be a titan of American letters was unimportant simply because she hadn't heard of him. It hurt personally. But as I think about it all these years later, I also think I feel sorry for her. Cause I'm like, how small is your life that at 16 years old, you're dismissing James Baldwin? Like, so, you know, I think there was a saying and I could never find it cause I'm not as good at Googling as I want to be and time is short. But there was a saying that they said during the effort to end slavery. And they said, the thing about the chain is that in order to keep someone in chains, you've got to hold on to the other end of the chain, which means you're in chains too, you know, like in your own way. If you have to hold on to the chain, then you're in chains too. And and that's what I think about a lot of my encounters. I think I watch people and I've watched people. I've watched them be cruel. I've watched them be petty. I've watched them be ignorant. And I really, um, and at the end of the day, I think, I'm also watching you handcuff yourself to your ignorance, to your pettiness, to your cruelty with no room to grow. You know, it's not like something that you fall into accidentally. You know, we've all done that. Like we say the wrong thing and then afterwards we're like, oh, but this is not that, right? This is I am better than, I am greater than, and you matter less. And let me tell you all the ways in which you matter less.
0: I guess the background of these experiences. Veronica reflects on the importance of picking one's battles and the burden of emotional labor, particularly at a time when even those normally spared by it cannot escape discussions around race and racism.
1: If somebody said to me today, James Baldwin doesn't matter because I've never heard of him, I think I would literally say, I'm so sorry because that's your loss. And I would just leave it at that because, you know, if, you know, it's like that thing If you know, you know, like, there's just no way to, in a five minute interaction, educate and elevate someone to the level where they're going to know what they're missing. And the way that they've come at it often shows that they aren't asking for that. But at the same time, I, I will also say that in the backdrop of 2020, I definitely had, I had a lot of white friends and acquaintances reach out to me a lot of people were thinking about race last year and what's kind of striking and sad to me is that a lot of people are not thinking about it in the same way this year and it was like it it was definitely a moment where people were like I mean my inbox was flooded some people I hadn't heard from in years and they're like I'm watching the George Floyd thing and I just I wanted to talk and I'm wondering how you are and you know The whole thing is, experts believe 26 million Americans participated in protests last summer, which would make it the biggest social movement of any kind in the nation's history. So it was constantly, it was on the news. And so people were reaching out to me to, you know, I think, do the emotional labor of being their Black friend. And for the most part, I found that really tiring and... Sad and frustrating, but I I will also say that I had a couple of friends who were white who I basically said, look, this is hard, and I can't educate you on this, and I need you to get up to speed, and maybe go read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, and then come back, and then let's have a talk when you've read something, and we can talk about it. And I think some people were offended because they were like, oh, I have to read a book to be your friend. But basically I was like, you're asking me to do emotional labor. Every time somebody asks you to explain race, tell them that they're not a racist, make them feel like they can make the world a better place by talking to you. um, I think that the idea that someone like... We live this our our whole lives. There is no off switch for most of us who have to deal with race, you know? So it's from the moment we wake up to the moment we step out of our house to whatever. And to say, you know, like you as a very intelligent person cannot find however long it takes, six to 12 hours in a year even, to read a 200 or 300 page book. It's really like it's in some ways it's like flaunting the privilege. It says, I've decided I only have five minutes to talk about race, so I will talk to you, but I don't have six hours to go a little deeper, you know, or even to say, I'll read a chapter over the weekend and, you know, I'm really busy, but I care about it. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's the power of the and. It's like, I am busy and I'm going to make time. I am busy and I care enough to like do some work on my own. And I will say, Stacey Marie Ishmael on Twitter is an amazing person to follow for how she breaks down race. Because one of the things that she said, and I might be quoting her badly, but she's like, anytime somebody comes to you and says, I, you know, am flabbergasted, blown away by the racial moment that we're in, she's like, Know that 10 other people tried to tell that to them. And this is the moment they decided to care. But there's no way that this was the first time someone flagged it and said, hey, you know, there's some pretty bad stuff going on, or hey, this is really hard. And so I I think what I appreciate is that I definitely had a couple of friends who heard me and came back and did some of the work on their own. And I think that is what is required for on a friendship level, not on a government or systemic level or whatever. But I think on a friendship level, it helps to do some work, (laughs) helps to do some homework. If you don't know,
0: then find out. (laughs) Veronica is the narrative project editor at The New York Times and the lead author of a book she recently published, Call and Response the story of Black Lives Matter. She shares her motivation to create the book and elaborates on the style she uses.
1: The book has more than 100 photographs from the New York Times, as well as historical photographs. And I think that that is something that's so striking, is that there are photographs that are in the book that you don't need me to put words to. I mean, it's when you see thousands of people in the streets, when you see families, when you see parents and kids walking on a bridge protesting together, you know that this is, you You just have all your own feelings. I don't even have to, what I love about photographs and why I love working with visual imagery is that I don't have to impose a meaning on it. Like maybe there's a photograph that reminds you of like your grandfather who was a soldier who like fought for something he believed in or an uncle or an aunt who was an activist. And so you can make your own connections. And and I think that's really important. I think I wanted to create a book that didn't feel like it was pushing forward any one agenda and really like representing a history. So the book has
0: more than a hundred photographs. Veronica notes that the book is divided into two sections. The first section explores the historical connections and foundations of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the second section looks at the various forms of activism and engagement one can witness. We
1: have two timelines. We have a timeline of the modern civil rights movement and the Black Power movement. And I think that that is important because in the U.S., people often teach civil rights. They teach Martin Luther King and the March on Washington, but they don't always teach Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party and the more radical parts of the movements of the 1950s and 60s. And one of the things that I think that the Black Lives Matter did is it's that it centered the radical idea of respectability politics. If You know, in social sciences, we talk a lot about this. And I think the modern civil rights movement had... thought, which was not a bad thought, but that black excellence would be the way to fight against racism. So more blacks at Harvard, more black doctors and lawyers. And like the more you achieve, the more racism goes away. I think that the Black Panther Party, Malcolm X, that whole movement, all kinds of like writers and thinkers that we don't think about all the time and who are far from household names. The radical idea of the Black Power Movement, Angela Davis, I think, obviously, is a great example of this, says that you do not have to earn your humanity by being an achiever, by being perfect, by getting good grades, by having a great job. You earn your humanity by being human. And so that is a very radical idea, which I think the Black Lives Matter movement has put forward the idea that we don't dissect the like character and quality of people who have died, devastating and undeath, unjust deaths. We say they are human and we are all human. And this is a pattern that is really so well studied at this point that it cannot be argued against. And so what do we do about the pattern? Instead of like picking apart the human for being human We say, what do we do about these patterns? So the first half of the book is kind of how we got here. You know, what are the movements of racial justice in the U.S. And how did you get to the moment of 2020? And then the second half of the book is, now that we know this, what have people done with it? And this is for me is, I love the second half of the book. And I remember when I was like laying it all out, because I think books are architectural. So it's almost like, you know, sketching a house. And for me, the second half of the book is where the book really takes wings and it's really saying, okay, these are the things that we know. These are the things that historians agree about. It is not being argued. It's not necessarily being preached by everybody, but it is known as fact. And so if we know this, what do people do with it? And so there's a whole section on athletes and how champions lead and looking at, you know, everything from the 1968 Olympics. And when people were holding up signs saying, why run when back home you have to crawl, you know? And then looking at athletes like the art from Arthur Ashe to Naomi Osaka and the masks that she wore with the victims of gun violence and who died in custody. And that kind of lineage, looking at Colin Kaepernick and his story and his protest and his coming of age. And then we looked at the art of protest. And I think that that is something that I think is really important for people to remember that it's everybody is not necessarily going to be in the streets, but we looked at the beautiful murals that people made. And I love the stories of them. You know, there was one mural where it was literally a group of kids who were in class together. And they were like, we don't want to just sit in a classroom. Let's go make a mural together. There was a mural that a father and daughter made together of like this kid doing backflips. And you know, just the murals and the way that all this pain inspired so much art, I think is really amazing. We have a whole chapter on music. And we talk about how music both sustains movements It gives them energy, Um, how in the 1960s, if you go to um, the Civil Rights Museum, they talk about, you could hear the freedom singers, and they would sing because when you're marching for miles and, and then, you know, hoses are being turned on you and dogs, it helps to sing a song like We Shall Overcome. But then you see how Kendrick Lamar's All Right became the anthem of Black, of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like it be singing the words gives you wings. But then we also talked about how songs like Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit became, that was the first song that started out as a protest song and graduated into the level of art. So a lot of people listen to Strange Fruit as a jazz standard, but it started as a protest song. And so we really spoke about how the music is really it's not just a chant or a shout, but it's really the artistry of capturing the um, nuance and the complexity that really drives people and why music is so important. And then, you know, we also there's two more things I'll talk about really quickly. We talked about a story that we worked on called um, The Anatomy of a Protest, and it was actually started as an Instagram story by a reporting fellow named Juliana Kim. And I saw this and it was so great because it was like a lot of times when people look at protests they are just like, there are all these people in the street. But what she did is she broke down the roles of people in the protest. So there's the marshal who leads a protest, who calls out the calls and responses, you know, whose streets, our streets. And that person is there to be visibly in the front. But then you have the legal observers, people who are lawyers and paralegals who are there in case people get arrested to take notes, to call lawyers, to help protect the rights of the protesters. You have street medics who are there in case somebody gets hurt, if someone falls or gets trampled or breaks a leg or anything that they get care as quickly as possible. Um, You have people who are there to give supplies, face masks and water and food. And so and that the cyclists aren't just there kind of cycling along. They're actually trained in mediating situations with motorists who don't want to be cooperative with the protest, but they also help scout new routes when the protest kind of gets off track. So the cyclists go ahead and do that. So I love that section because I think everything benefits from a closer gaze. And I think that the what we really tried to do in the book is say, okay, any protest, it could be climate protest, it could be protests against gun violence, it could be racial justice protests, it could be disability rights, it could be gender and sexuality rights. They all have a common theme in that they are way more organized than we think they are. <laughs> and they are for the most part peaceful and This is why they are effective all around the world. You know, a study was done at a university and I'm going to blanket the university because I have so many facts in my head. But between 1900 and 2005 in the United States and all around the world, actually, more than 50% of peaceful protests were successful in reaching some degree of their aims. And that's the reason why we have peaceful protests is because they work it's effective. When people take to the streets, when people do murals, when they write songs, when they gather and they say, these are the issues that matter to me, it forces change on a national and sometimes global level. So um, that's really what the book is about. It's about protest in the biggest sense of the word, why people protest, how it happens and why it matters.
0: Veronica reflects on the valley of the Black Lives Matter, particularly in moving our level of attention from the role of individuals to systems and structures.
1: I think that one of the things that the Black Lives Matter did really well was that they moved the conversation away from race being about a certain act of an individual. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, like in schoolyards, especially middle school and high school, like being able to say to someone, not me particularly, but kids would say, you're such a racist. And that would be like calling someone a bad name, right? And and somehow that was used as both an attack and a defense. But I think that what the conversation in the U.S. is trying to get to in terms of systemic racism is saying it's not about a bad individual or a bad community or a bad state it's not the South. It's not this particular small town. It's, I think that we have long clung to the illusion that if we could educate people who are racist, racism would go away. And so I think what systemic racism is saying is that the racism is so baked into our civil society as Americans that We have to look at systems of employment, education, housing, banking, and say, how have these systems denied people of color and continue to treat them unequally? And how do we rectify that in order to address the issue of race? And, you know, Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, said, when we say Black Lives Matter, We're talking about more than police brutality. We're talking about incarceration, healthcare, housing, education, and economics. All the different components of a broader system that has created the reality we see today. Black lives should matter in all stages of life. And to honor that truth, we must radically transform the system from its roots. So that's a start.
0: Veronica has the following to say on what she thinks it means to be anti-racist.
1: I think to be anti-racist is to be present, connect with compassion, and to give a little bit more of yourself than maybe you might normally do. And also to know that in the giving, you have the opportunity to lift the other person up. You know, in the African-American community, there's a vernacular, each one teach one. And I think that if you can think not as a person of color, but a person of any color, if I can be one who can teach one, lift one, help one, how much of a difference does that make in the aggregate? Maybe a lot, you know?
0: You can find a link to Veronica's book, As well as other articles, books, and videos, she recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next month on March 2nd. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Niui. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Veronica for her time and energy in going down memory lane for us sharing with us timely and crucial reflections on this issue. And to Nanda for putting the two of us in touch.